0: The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable.
1: Welcome to The Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to The Unlearned Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Susan O'Malley. Susan's a senior director at IDEO, where she's held numerous positions over the years. She's worked in the CoLab, she's been head of strategy, and served as chief of staff to chair Tim Brown. She's also worked at Google in the early days and helped set up their European operations in Dublin, working to scale and grow the AdWords team. She studied at Stanford, really challenged herself, and got uncomfortable in many different roles. I'm delighted to have her on her show because we share a passion for creating high-performance teams and culture. And her current work today, specifically in IDEO, is helping organisations design those systems of work to make that happen. I'm excited to share her stories with you. And she's also Irish, so it's always a bonus to have friends on the show.
0: I would say the first thing that I was really fortunate to have, even going back as far as my early childhood, growing up in the middle a house of five kids and with mom and dad in small town Ireland running their own business is to always be open to opportunities and think about what was exciting me and what was firing me up about what was possible in the world. So I'm from a town called Navan, which is about an hour north of Dublin. It's a famous old furniture town and wasn't the world's most exciting place growing up. There's actually quite a number of very famous comedians that are from Navan, and they always say that your imagination is a fairly critical tool to survive in, in this town. But I think from earliest childhood, the sense of possibility and the sense of excitement about moving towards something was something that was really ingrained in me, both from my family and from my brothers and sisters and from the school. And so mostly I think this has to come down to a tremendous amount of luck and the economic circumstances of Ireland, right, in the 1980s and the 1990s, that new things were coming into the country. The country was diversifying with immigration and all these great, great forces that really brought Ireland into the modern day. Being open to following your heart, really. And it wasn't really so much about the ideas as the people that I wanted to gravitate towards. So in my school, there was a phenomenal German teacher. And when I was going off to university, I was thinking of studying very technical things. And she said, you should try and get into the best university you can, but you should do the broadest undergraduate degree because you only have one chance to open your mind like that. And she said, you can specialize later, but don't be going off studying computing and linguistics and all this kind of crack. Do the thing that's really going to fire you up. What and a it was great the best of advice, advice ever. early.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's amazing for someone to sort of have that foresight.
0: It was really tremendous. She's an astonishing woman. But the corollary to that then when I got to university was, you probably know this yourself from your studies, like it wasn't even about what was happening in the lecture hall. I fell in with this crowd in a very old kind of venerable debating society. And I probably grew as much as a person navigating those social situations and fundraising and sponsorship and actually debating the big ideas and policies of our time. And back to your question about what was unforeseen, the experiences I had doing competitive debating in university and in high school turned me into a brilliant researcher, right? So when I was going in for my interview with Google, and I actually didn't even know it was an interview with Google. It was a manpower temporary job that was going to pay 10 or an hour doing some laborious computer thing. Right. Um, I went off the deep end and was looking into AdWords and the auction model and Hal Varian. And I found this crazy through line from my economics degree into literally how they had designed the AdWords product. And so I remember sitting in that interview in Google, it was, you know, less than a hundred people at the time in Dublin and thinking, well, you know, I hope I get this customer service job because this just sounds fascinating. <laughs> but like even if <laughs> even if I don't, like this was loads of fun. Like I've already grown as a person today. I'm sitting across from these people who again who I'm attracted to, who I'm drawn to, and I'm just gonna be open and vulnerable and be myself. And if it doesn't work out, there'll probably be something else coming along again in an hour or in a week or in a day.
1: That's such a phenomenal perspective to have going into really any opportunity, being so open to that, but doing the work as well to actually really understand the the people you're going to spend time with, being curious enough about the topic to learn about it and recognize patterns and connect it to other things that you've done before. That's quite unique. It's not often I hear people share that. How did you sort of cultivate that within yourself?
0: Yeah, well, it's a great question. And just kind of reflecting on it on the fly I think there's probably two components the first we've already hit on right which is the love of learning and the love of sense making and the sense that even if I didn't have a lot of resources if I had some resources things were available to me so this was the time frame when the internet was coming online in a big way I could find things out I could learn things I could read a newspaper I knew where could I get good information and who could I trust and how could I gravitate towards those sources I think the second dimension to it though is actually much more personal and I'd they'll be embarrassed if they hear this, but I'd even pull this back to my brothers and sisters and parents because growing up as the middle of five children, you become a bit of a harmonizer and you really get very in sync and in tune with all the kind of emotions and different realities that people are living out even inside of that house, right? One of my colleagues at IDEO, we joke that our retirement plan is to write the leadership book on middle children because (laughs) even though the world doesn't have a lot of as many big families anymore, which totally makes sense from a health and economics point of view, like, I think it's been one of the really great gifts of my life to grow up in a big household like that and to learn from those people and grow together.
1: Yeah, well, this obviously resonates massively with me. Like, I'm one of six kids. I'm the second eldest. And it's amazing how much you learn from the dynamics of family, right, good and bad, as many people will sort of of smile to themselves as well. But Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot to be said there, right? Like, when I think about my situation it's a lot of different people a lot of different motivations a lot of different styles even in one family that can sort of do that to you you know and I think it's great to recognize that and the fact that you could potentially write the middle child story the book got a, sounds like a billion dollar idea right there
0: there you go. I'll have to call up one of your younger brothers or sisters, Barry. We'll get on the case. They would love to be on this show to out <laughs> all my skeletons, believe me. Hey, my siblings. But you know, if we jump ahead to the time at Google, I think, look, I was unbelievably fortunate to get a seat there in that experience. And I think there were a couple of things going on there for me that really helped me, if I think through 15 years. Years ahead to sitting in San Francisco with you today. The first was just that the product, right? It was a once in a lifetime product that had all these inbuilt mechanics around the way that click throughs made you smarter, the way the auction was priced. And I think, particularly in that moment in Dublin in 2004, it wasn't the big companies, it wasn't the e commerce giants that were getting online, it was the mom and pop small businesses, it was the people who'd hacked together a website, who'd heard about it from a friend or something like that. And so it was. The most delightful thing to be doing customer service, like the actual job kind of sucked at times, but I literally saw the product changing the world and changing people's business models. And people would ring you up in October and say, we're sold out for Christmas, turn off our ads, or we've no more inventory and stuff like this. And so just the people you met were so, so fascinating. And it gave me this tremendous sense of optimism around what technology can do, not just for the big guys, but actually for the little guys and the guys in the middle. That was a really, really inspiring thing that I think was only when I got out to Silicon Valley five, six years later that I understood what that had sort of done to me as a person.
1: That in itself, I think is such a unique experience. So many people are working inside businesses where they might be executing work to the best of their ability, but they have no idea that the impact it's potentially having, not even on customers, not even outside the business, inside the business. They often feel like like they're just in work, churning through an in pile, hoping to make it an out pile and go home and how do I get any feedback that it's actually had a positive impact? Yeah. I think there's something very unique even here that, you know, you're right on sort of the front line, you're connected with your customer in many respects, you're seeing the impact you're having on their lives. Mm -hmm. Like this idea of tight feedbacks with our customers as we're building products, it's sort of a foundation, I suppose, of many product innovations that, you know, obviously experienced in Google and continue to experience in IDO today. So, How did some of that, in some respects, just that maybe did you believe that that's just the way it was? Did you feel unique? I'm kind of curious about that.
0: Yeah, well, look, you know, hindsight is obviously the thing here and it's the stronger force. But maybe to talk about what it felt like in the moment then and maybe how I make sense of it now, I think there was definitely a bit of a disconnect back then because, There's something about the feelings and emotions of these customers, right? Which is axiomatic, like, which is their truth. Like if they have a brilliant experience with the product and they're really happy or they feel like they're getting ripped off and they're angry, being on the front lines of that was absolutely the best way to get into the company and to make sense of that. And so probably back then I felt like people who worked in operations or ad support were probably second tier or even third tier citizens within the company because it was such an engineering heavy culture and probably if engineering, I see you're nodding there, like you totally know about this from behind the scenes, but if engineering was top dog and product was second lieutenant, then customer automation and all that kind of stuff could be kind of either phased out or managed or whatever. But I think back then, maybe they underestimated how clever the Irish people were in in terms of our ability to optimize and build sales teams and do just really cool stuff, right? I think like World, a lot of these early hospitality booking companies, just really, really smart Irish people who had their finger on the pulse and got into these systems early and figured out how they worked. So back then, it didn't feel very customer centric, even though I knew that the product was amazing. And I think that's why when I got to the D School and I got to Stanford, I sort of was able to understand that and realize that the next type of company I wanted to work for whether it was as an advisor or a consultant or whether it was as an operator, I did want to have that in its DNA because I really felt that that was the key to success. And that was the thing that couldn't be automated or competed out of your system.
1: For the listeners then, just helping them understand that you see, you know, you spend all this time in Google and then you decide that in some respects, you sort of want to go back and learn more stuff or look at different things. So just share a little bit for the listeners about some of that, another transition you sort of made, right? So for many people, they're sitting there, wow, being Google when it's a couple of hundred people to see that business scale. And then you're almost saying, well, i are going to step off this elevator and get on an entirely different one, maybe even going in a different direction. So yeah, help people absolutely. understand that choice?
0: I suppose the punchline of what happened around that time, and I was in my early to mid-20s, is that... I noticed these amazing leaders and managers coming into Google in Dublin. And so when I started, it was around 100 people or so, a bit more, a bit less. And then by the time I left six years later, it was around two and a half thousand people. And it's gone absolutely massive since then. They were recruiting back a lot of folks who either had been in the US at these leading companies or leading business schools to run the Dublin office, or people who were kind of based in Dublin who'd studied abroad. And so the quality of the thinking and the interpersonal skills of these managers just blew me away. And I saw wave after wave after wave of these incredible leaders, some of whom are very dear friends and amazing mentors and sponsors. And I think at the time, trying to understand like what made a truly great leader, someone would go from managing the Spanish team to managing CS Tech, and then suddenly they'd be running Gmail in Latin America, or they'd be launching maps or launching payments. And none of this was linear, right? none of this could be predictable. And these people had unbelievable careers. And I was kind of wondering, like, what is it that's making these leaders, first of all, why does it feel great to be around them? Like, what is it that they're doing? They're not just charismatic, they're fair, they're intentional, but they seem to be able to succeed at anything they turn their hand to. And as someone in my mid-20s, like this just blew my mind. I was like, what's up with that? This is just unbelievable. And is there any of that that, I could have or that I could hope for or cultivate in myself during my life. And so over time, I think the big flip was the business was getting more and more and more specialized. Some people were moving to London or moving to Mountain View to headquarters. And I could see we were bringing in salespeople from the big ad agencies in London. And we were bringing in operations people from GE and Boeing and all this kind of stuff. And I was kind of thinking, do I want to double down on one of those paths? Is that focus and commitment the right thing for me in this moment in my life versus like? Is it the breath? Is it being able to integrate and connect dots? Is that what fires me up? And really, at the most basic level, I would just say I was drawn to what I saw these leaders emanate. And I had a bit of a weird experience where I went back to night school to study advertising because I saw that what AdWords was doing was so fundamental to everything on the internet. You know, I kind of became an expert in online advertising. And... That was a good experience. Like I was grateful to have had it. But the content they taught me over probably 40 weeks and 12 weekends was just like half of it was a waste of time, frankly. Um, Because you're living it in some
1: respects, right? You're
0: creating this new domain and studying
1: maybe a paradigm that's like sort of eradicating in some respects.
0: Absolutely. And so there's a yes and there, which is that was very true. And I mean, to be fair, like I did this because I wanted to go back and learn about David Ogilvy and all these old theories and the history of advertising. But the kicker for me was that one of my mentors said to me, look, if you're going to go and do this MBA, there's local programs and there's programs in London. But she said, the kind of experience that you say you're wanting, I think you need to go to an American Redbrick to get that. And she yeah. said, it's going to be scary. You're going to have to tell your parents you're getting a mortgage against your brain. Like they're not really going to grok that. <laughs> Which is true. You're sitting there trying to explain this thing like you're going to borrow how much and, and whatever. But she was spot on which she said any of these top 10 or top 20 programs I think that's what you're craving so go for it. And the other killer piece of advice she gave me and she'd been an incredible woman who had gone to Harvard in the 90s. She said your job is to keep asking and it's the Dean of Admissions job to say yes or no and nobody else's opinion matters. Like people going up and down this building knowing what's going on with you and you're taking the GMAT again and you're stressed out. She says Your job is to ask, their job is to say yes, no, or maybe, and everything else is just going to come out in the wash. And again, second time a teacher, you know, inspired me, such a profound piece of advice, which I now tell young people when they come to me to talk about these programs, your job is to keep asking and their job is to say yes or no.
1: That's so amazing that you've been surrounded by these people. But I think what really strikes me is that you're really looking for the behaviours around these role models that you feel are helping them excel. And you're not talking about the specialization of a very specific skill. You're focused much more on just the quality that these people can bring to whatever they do. And that's really interesting to me, right? Because what I keep finding invariably the best leaders you ever work with, like half of the time, I don't know what they do. I don't know what they ever studied. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that they all seem to be working in a different field than they originally trained. yeah. And yet they've really cultivated this capability to continuously adapt to changing circumstances. And they've built systems that allow them to sort of explore uncertainty very intentionally. Yeah. Uh, they build a lot of fast feedback mechanisms into things. They're very curious. They get outside yeah. their comfort zone. Like these patterns just keep coming up again and again to the point now where... For my own self, I tend not to really be interested in the company, for instance, that people Mm -hmm. are from. I know the best people I'll work with are the characteristics of the person. And and I find that that's the thing to look for, whether it's a mentor, whether it's someone I'm going to work with, whether it's people to have on a team. Yeah, That's what I keep finding is these characteristics in the individual is what makes it great, not necessarily the to token things that sit around them.
0: That's really spot on, Barry. And I think I've been thinking a lot about this word authenticity. So I've been reading the new book that came out from Frances Fry, Unleashed, which is her sort of tell-all, you know, inside of Uber and as a Harvard Business School professor and a top coach. And what I think is refreshing about that book, I'm not sure if you've checked it out yet, it's kind of a short read, but what she's describing is not rocket science, right? It's not some mad coaching methodology or framework that's going to blow your mind. It's about consistency. But the thing I really love about her is it's about being yourself. And she talks about all the ways that authenticity helps us. It helps other people be attracted into what we're trying to do. It helps us communicate. It helps us produce amazing results in other people. And I think I've also encountered lots of great leaders and mentors who weren't a fit, right? Who were doing their own thing and had a very different style to me. And that's also totally fine as well. I think our job is to cultivate companies and teams where we have a great mix of people and where people can really be themselves, right? So that we can all kind of find this energy and find this collaboration that's going to take us to the next level.
1: Yeah, it's funny when you use that word energy, it pairs exactly what I was sort of thinking about myself, right? Like, Because I remember when I was starting off and even like doing talking or writing, or I had this image that I thought I had to be somebody else. Like I thought I had to be this character that I thought like people who speak about things where, or yeah. write about things where it's funny in terms of feedback you're getting, one of the best bit of feedback. So when I was in my, the last company I was in ThoughtWorks, I was on one of these leadership development programs. And one of the people on the program was a guy named Sam Newman. He wrote this book about microservices. And I was up there doing this sort of, you had to do a little talk to sort of just to show a talk that you would do. Mm-hmm. And I came back down and I sat down beside him and he goes, who was that up there? I was like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> You're man. He, who's that guy up there? I'm like, that was me. And he goes, yeah. that's not you. I, you know, I don't like that guy up there. You should yeah. just be yourself. And it was one of these sort of like, even for myself, it was a real unlearning moment for me too, because I was like, if I'm trying to be something I'm not it takes energy. Totally. And I'm even more uncomfortable. And I'm trying to live yeah. up to this sort of vision I've created that's probably not real. But yet, the more comfortable I became being myself in front of people, which is this act of vulnerability in some respects, like you're literally putting your whole self out there a lot of the time, yeah. especially <laughs> anytime you share anything, totally. you know, especially on the internet. Yeah. But again, I think that was one of the most important breakthroughs I've had Personally, myself is just being able to show up as me, and this is me, and that's okay. And yeah. it doesn't take energy to be me, it actually gives me energy. And I think yeah. that was another interesting sort of moment as I was hearing you sharing those stories as well.
0: Yeah, spot on. And I'm hoping maybe a bit later on in the conversation, we can talk a little bit about personal energy and peak performance and some of this inner work that I think you and I both have a passion for that we know leaders have to do right today to even stand a chance of being in the game there's actually a lot that needs to be true and it's not something that we can force right there's things we have to come to know about ourselves we have to understand our triggers we have to understand energy and flow this is the unofficial work that's happening I think behind the scenes that is really a big big part of what contributes to that differentiated performance in the long term
1: well, like, let's just talk about it now, because I think it's sort of front and center of a lot of the work that you're exploring now at the moment in IDO, right? You're really starting to push the boundaries of not just designing products, but like designing workplaces, designing higher performance organizations, which we both are massively passionate about. So first of all, like what has led you to start doing research in, to a certain extent in this, like what made you go, right, I've looked at.
0: Getting exposure to some of the IDEO methodology, actually, even when I was still at Google in Dublin, I remember reading a Harvard Business Review cover story where they were talking about the design process. And I was trying to help my boss with a very tricky communications challenge. And I saw this thing in HBR, this visual. It was actually about how they were getting inspired for a small hotel room and they hired a theater designer to help them figured how to navigate something, probably what we would call service design or experience design today. And I remember ripping it out and showing it to my boss at the time saying, this is the kind of thing we need, like that this is the kind of level we should be communicating at. You know, you're this good, you're this important. Why aren't we kind of thinking at this level? So when I got to IDEO, I think there was a lot of personal unlearning. So to one of your teams from the book. I had to really leave a lot of my baggage as a strategist and as a team leader and a manager from a tech company. And I had to just give myself over to the design process. And there was a couple of things going on there, which we can double click on any of them if you're interested. The first was just learning how to really work with and appreciate designers, which was an unbelievable gift, understanding that I had to follow a process, right? Like these processes that are public and ideas published a lot and the d schools published a lot but moving through it and not having a lot of control over how we would go from stage to stage and actually knowing that there would be a lot of leaps of faith and a lot of miracles happening as we went from stage to stage and just really getting comfortable with that ambiguity so embracing ambiguity is one of our values and it's our values aren't things that are just printed on the wall they're actually how you you need to be able to do your job you need to be able to engage with the values so that was a whole process. And I had a phenomenal mentor at the time who was running the kind of area I worked in. And he said, look, you're a bit older. You're coming in with a bit more experience. You're an MBA. He said, the one piece of advice I'll give you is for the next six months, don't be running around about being underleveled or overleveled. Don't be looking for extra projects. Don't be going on any hiring committees. Just be in the project room, listen to the designers and try and be a good collaborator and try and understand what's going on around you. And he's like, I guarantee you it's going to feel uncomfortable. But he said, this place, if you get a reputation for being a good designer, a good collaborator, it's going to magnify and everybody's going to want to work with you. And he said, there's a lot of people I've brought in at your level who've gotten a reputation for being a bad collaborator because I, they need to be smart or they need to know what's going on. And he said, you just for the next year, just put your head down. And I was living over in Menlo Park at the time cycling. I've, one, a weird fact about me is I've never, never had time to learn how to drive. I just remember I've cycling ne- I've home I've never owned
1: a car either. It's <laughs> there awesome. There you go.
0: And I just remember being completely exhausted, like just from moving sticky notes around, listening, synthesizing, engaging with clients. And it was honestly the best. The MBA was a good investment, but honestly, that time to just hunker down and be humble and follow the team was really, really phenomenal. And then really understanding that the tools I had in terms of all the stuff I'd learned, like the strategy and the coaching and all the stuff from the MBA at Stanford, that was powerful but I needed to share those tools to activate the designers because one of the designers would have some kind of an insight or come some kind of a perspective about how to visualize something or how to tell a story or how to try something out with a customer that just would be completely next level. Like not even one plus one equals three, one plus one equals 50 or a hundred, right? So the thing I tell the teams I coach now is try to create a level playing field intellectually try to bring people into the process and share your tools because that is the biggest gift you can give. And it's not about your performance and it's not about what you know. It's about the things that everybody can make together.
1: That's a fantastic insight and takeaway for people actually, because so much of the classic, I would say dated archetype is you've done the study, you've been in the companies, you go in and you tell people what to do, right? And Nothing is more disempowering, disenfranchising from a group of talented, created people if one person tries to tell everybody else what to do, right? Like,
0: oh, it just won't work, yeah? <laughs> it, it
1: won't. And as you say, like if you create the environment and the platform for people to put themselves out there, suggest tools that might be helpful and see how people can build upon these different things or remix them to get, like, as you said, one plus one being 50... Like, that's true. I think where the magic happens is like creating these working environments, safety of the team where people are going to show up. And that's a really special experience. So, how do you start to think about when you're trying to create those spaces for teams? Because it's for so many people, I think, who listen to this show, often sometimes people think I'm talking about stuff that doesn't exist in a sort of fantasy land, right? Because they're <laughs> in the command and control my aspiration is to become a senior widget maker just so people won't be telling me what to do and I can tell the junior widget maker what to do, then everything will be great. And even when they get there, then they're even more disappointed because they find out that it's not what they actually want to do and then they're sort of stuck. So how can you help these people start to think about as they go about creating these types of environments? What have you seen has worked well or even some yeah. of the gotchas for people to avoid?
0: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'll start in a more obvious place, which is maybe talking a little bit about culture and talking about process. And I don't necessarily mean the aspirational culture or the culture we want, but I think knowing your own culture and even knowing the culture of immediate team or sub team that you're working in is a really powerful thing. And so the one thing that wasn't obvious to me when I came to the US to study was that Google had a phenomenal corporate culture and I thought cultures were good or bad or attractive or not interesting. And then I got exposed to the Amazons and the Bridgewaters and even the Netflixes, right? And there's actually a lot of stuff going on kind of under the waterline there that maybe you don't notice about in terms of...
1: Absolutely.
0: I see you nodding, like whether it's deep culture or or surface culture. And I think in some of the change work and the coaching work I've done, companies need to take the time to sort of reflect and make sense and understand what really is their culture. Where did it come from? What are the people? Often if it's a founder-led culture, like what's driving that? And then are we comfortable in that or are we trying to change it? And what are some of the interventions or artifacts that we might want to kind of have to move that process along? So that's the first side of it. I think the second side of it is process, right? Which is a word that I think it can either sound great or annoying. I think there's a lot of process bureaucracy stuff going on that's not very helpful inside of companies. But I think that whether it's a design-driven culture or whether it's using things like Agile, taking a moment to encourage people to listen and understand like what are we really saying is supposed to be our process and how are we moving through it and what are going to be the inflection points or the changes or the, the moments we're moving through. And I think in the project spaces at IDEO, like we kind of invent every project structure a lot of the time kind of based on the real situation and on the client. But there's an awful lot of whiteboarding out. Where are we in this moment? Where are we going? Do we need to come up 10,000 feet? Do we need to go down into the detail? And so I learned this idea from systems designers about like relating the macro to the micro. How does this type of how does the type of pencil that we have at this company relate to whatever the 10K for the stock market? But there's this image that Russ who who is a phenomenal systems thinker, a professor who died a while back, talks about why architects make such great systems designers, because they're able to move between all of these levels. And so The punchline of this is that any kind of creative process I was guiding a team through inside of any company, I would want everybody on the team to be able to pick up a marker and whiteboard out the whole process end to end and talk about where they thought we were and maybe what the next stage would be and how we're kind of going to move through it. So how we have kind of shared consciousness of what we're doing. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of leaders inside of big companies, and frankly, a lot of consultants, a lot of consultants and coaches are not generous. Like they don't listen and understand like, okay, you know, your thing looks a bit like my thing, but what are we really trying to do? Are we trying to be customer centric? Or are we trying to create psychological safety? are we trying to create quicker prototypes? Are we trying to descale work? Like, what are we trying to do here? And how can we almost have like the Esperanto of innovation that really integrates all this stuff? And it isn't saying that my methodology is competing with yours. Actually, a lot of this stuff is trying to do the same thing. It's trying to listen to the customer. It's trying to make leaders more humble. And there's a couple of these things that are underneath everything so that would be what I would say is like have that kind of dialogue
1: well I think what's really striking listening to you share this is how intentional and how deliberate what you're doing really is I think sometimes when people look at design or creative processes they sort of think like oh you just throw five people in a room make sure there's somewhat diversity be a little bit cross-functional and then something magic's going to pop out the other end and what I've seen and obviously what you're sharing here as well is that high performance teams have a huge amount of rigor, huge amount of discipline, and they understand where they are in a process. The shared context is actually super powerful about understanding what's the outcome we expect from this step we're currently taking. What's the next step? What was the last step? How did they relate to one another? Like in continuously checking in, I think that was one of the Things that was a huge breakthrough actually for me when I was working with some really great, I would say, like facilitators of innovation happening that I got to observe either when I was in startups or in ThoughtWorks in the last company, or even today when I'm in a room with Mm -hmm. them, I can see the way they're constantly explaining to people, here's where we are, here's what we're going to do next. Why did we do the last step? How does it relate? So this working context of people is really alive and you can feel it. And I think that's actually what allows you to riff way more. Where yeah. I think some of the dangers, as you've pointed to, like the, the amount of companies that just have these templates and you just follow the template and tick box transformation and try to scale their impact by rolling out methodologies and certifying people in hundreds of thousands of things. There's no creativity in that. It's just, it's just a tick box transformation that doesn't stick, it doesn't work, and people actually feel more constraints, yeah. which is its sort of, again, it's like an antithesis of what you're trying to do. But it's easy to buy, it's easy to roll out, it's easy to feel activity is happening, yeah. and yet there's no results with it. You know, yeah. and,
0: Absolutely. I have a great friend, Stephen, and he talks about the illusion of progress, which is sometimes <laughs> these things feel like they're signifying progress, but they're not necessarily. Something you're hitting on there, Barry, makes me remember another key kind of learning or unlearning, which is If you're facilitating these kinds of workshops or coaching leaders, you probably, both you yourself and they and their companies, they need to kind of fall out of love with the outcome, right? They need to stop wanting to control the outcome and understand that it's the process and it's the effort that is actually going to be the thing that wins, right? Because they can't control necessarily what a customer is going to think or what a launch is going to do, but they can reward the effort and the approach that a team takes. And so... If you dial that back to how you would literally coach a leader, then if you were in a workshop or an offsite or at exec camp or something like, of course, you would absolutely want to be in the moment and be present and do the thing that was the most valuable for the client. You might need to rip up your agenda because there's some other epiphany that you can see is in front of the group, right? And so it actually takes a tremendous amount of problem solving and kind of improv to perform at that level because it's kind of like the old joke about planning, right? You need to go through the activity of planning to think through the plan to practice doing that. but you're not actually doing that for the plan. I think you talked about this in the Aftershock book. Like it's People forget that that's not the goal. The goal is to go through that so that that muscle gets practiced. And the same thing I, threw is, I think is true of corporate innovation, right? You're following these vectors, but we actually don't know what's going to happen. But we need to get better and better at this process because that's what performance is about.
1: So, you know, you've just struck me with a classic You look animated, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just a classic example of this in actually in one of the exec camps, right? And where it comes from and i often show this sort of visual it's like a uh, problem process and results right three words you gotta find a problem follow a process you get a result and often what happens is i think for many people the result actually becomes the measure of success like if i'm confident i only get positive results i'm good mm-hmm. at what i do i always get positive results Mm -hmm. So therefore, I have this much more stronger weighting on results because I'm results oriented I'm results focused. Mm -hmm. One of the really interesting parts and this manifests in every single exec camp, even when we build out like the plan for what might look like for the week or the two weeks or together. Some people are like, no, no, we have to stick to the agenda that we wrote to get this (laughs) result or we start to do work they realize what the result that they're shooting for is starting to come into jeopardy. Not because they're not doing the work correctly, Mm. but because you're discovering things that mean like that the result you thought you were going to get is actually a negative, right? So customers mightn't actually like the product you're about to build. And that causes panic in people because they're like, well, what if I get a bad result? What if my result is not negative? And I'm sitting there going, this is brilliant. We've just spent two days on this and we realized it sucks. Now we can go and do something else. (laughs) And when you're trying to explain to people that actually what we want to do is dampen the results. Like, don't worry about building your competency to always get positive results. Build your competency to actually find what are your problems? What process might you use to figure out if that problem is real or not? And the results is just like a feedback message. Sometimes it's positive, sometimes it's negative. Yeah. Um, but it's guiding you. What you want to keep focusing on is tuning the problem and then tuning yeah. your process to solve that problem. Yeah. And it's such a transformation for, like, and I would say, honestly, 40% of people that do exec camp, their head blows up in the first week because they, yeah. they're afraid how they will be marked. Uh, yeah. for doing, like, how's their brand going to be hit? And then you've sort of got another 40% are like, this is amazing. I can be really expressive and do whatever I want. And but I'm growing as a person because I'm totally outside my comfort zone. And then you have 20 people that are just like, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me and they just leave, you know? And (laughs) as many times as I say that to people, as we sort of start them, everyone's like, yeah, 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 yeah. We've done it before, whatever. This is just a training program, you know? I'll just (laughs) sit in class in the back and, you know, and it blows my mind, you know? But it's so true. Because we're so conditioned, especially successful people, right? They're used to getting A pluses their whole life. They don't want to compromise the perfection of their results. And yet, you know, as you're even describing in the creative process, the result is sort of like secondary to like figuring out what's the real problem here and having a good process to explore it. And if we do that well, we're going to be taken to the direction that we should go, that's probably not where we thought we would be at the start. And I think that's a huge insight for people to take away because it's, it's, it's ab- contrary to everything.
0: Absolutely. It almost makes me think if anyone's sort of, you know, listening to this and hasn't had one of those experiences recently, that's the, <laughs> that's, that's the, a problem. That's, that's the work version of seeing the redwood trees or seeing a beach somewhere. But there's something else bubbling up for me that I, just as you're talking, that I hadn't quite thought of this way before, which is that these experiences and these reps through the cycle, right, that's an incredible muscle to expose people to, to just go through that process end to end. And I know our mutual friend, Jake Knapp, he talks about a lot with the design sprint methodology, like it's about getting more reps and getting comfortable with the process.
1: Absolutely agree. Like doing reps, building that muscle, the muscle to continuously adapt to changing circumstances, be comfortable with it is something I focus a lot about on the exec camps. I know you do a huge amount of mentoring and coaching for people. What are some of the areas that you focus on when you're trying to help leaders or people improve, not only their performance, but maybe even get to know themselves better?
0: Yeah, that's spot on. I think there's a framework that a coach I've had a lot of good fortune to work with a couple of years ago turned me onto and it was the kind of hierarchy of the W's, right? So the who, the what, the where. And we were talking a little bit of a role switch and we landed on this thing of optimizing on who, what, and where in that moment was right for me. But other people who I mentor or kind of spend time with who are at a different moment in their life, they have a totally different sequence of those Ws. And that's actually really powerful. Like maybe they need the resources of a big company or a traditional consultancy to get that education and that mentoring or to, for financial reasons, they need to create something in that moment in their life. And I think we don't spend enough time thinking about how much we can design that. What are we really drawn to? And I think the people part is so critical, right? As you move on, what is going to energize you and what's going to really give you that torque? I talk about torque partners, not thought partners, but torque partners, which is kind of the gear shift on a bike or a motorbike, right? you like one, two, five X. And literally who are those people when I'm collaborating with them or working with them, we can get to 10x, 50x faster. And it'll feel like fun. It'll feel like we're in flow because we're able to kind of support each other and match our thinking styles. And so I'm always trying to inspire younger people, maybe inside of our company or out in the world. I do a lot of mentoring for young women and and people coming up through the ranks, trying to help them understand that they deserve this and that they should seek these things out back to the beginning of our conversation. Like it's okay to move towards what you're drawn for. It's okay to make choices about other things too, if you need to, but you deserve great collaboration. And that's more than table stakes nowadays.
1: Well, what a great set of really nice tools. I love the W's idea of where, what, who. It's so interesting about how to prioritize them again. But I think it just exemplifies this design um, approach. You're talking to everything. So as we look into the future, I think now what you're currently doing is super fascinating to me. Right. Like many people associate idea with designing products but now you're literally starting to design internal processes for organizations across every discipline in the company so what have been some of the sort of aha moments that you've sort of started to see is you're literally like taking a lot of this sort of process to a certain extent and bringing it to whole different domains or a different perspective specifically within what IDO might be traditionally known for so what have been the sort of aha moments and interesting insights you've discovered so far
0: yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. I suppose I would say that my own journey for the past couple of years, being a project leader for big systems projects, and then I had a tour of duty internally as a chief of staff, which is an absolutely phenomenal experience. Maybe that's a separate podcast show. <laughs> but I learned actually from my clients and collaborators was the importance of this cultural stuff and the behavior change and really helping them build the organization that they would need to succeed and to win in the future. And so I got much more interested in what I would call the traditional like organizational design side of the house. And so I've had a couple of years of working with that. But if we located it in this moment right now, what I would say I'm the most interested in is a thing called talent design. And so I have a little team of talent designers inside of IDEO and We've seen this as a perennial question, like when companies are evolving and growing and moving towards new things, they either need to attract some new talent in terms of new things they're trying to do, or they need to bring people into their talent brand, right? They need to help different people become attracted to the idea of working at that company. And so this is where the idea of talent design comes from. And so what we're doing at the moment is kind of using human-centered design as part of all the other things that IDEO does, like change work and service design work, and saying, we can help you identify, retain, and actually grow and develop the talent that you need to win. And so we can do things like thinking about your talent brand, thinking about where you go and how you build up relationships and pipelines with the future talent. And we can also say, right, well, when the talent gets there, how are they moving through the system? What is their experience like as employees? And are there processes and systems and tools that we should be designing that can make their life better? So, It sounds corny, but I think the idea that the employee experience is a product or a service the way that every other thing that you have in the world is a product or service is really powerful. And increasingly, companies are going to need to be doing better training, better reskilling, things like the design of benefits packages. Like this stuff is absolutely critical. It's not extra credit stuff. And that's really important. And so for me, it's just another way that I can help our clients have impact. Because I think we've all been in meetings where... Someone saying, I can't get the talent or I can't find them or they won't stay or they're not happy. And you're like, well, okay, like, let's just pause for a second and ask, like, do they need to live here? (laughs) Who are we looking for? Like, do we really need these criteria? And I think maybe for me on a more intellectual level, like a lot of this is tangled up in what I would call like unbundling the corporation, right? thinking about the structures we need inside big companies, thinking about how work gets done. Like Realistically, most of this innovative work nowadays is getting done in a project format, or it's getting done through experimental structures like you talk about in your descaling research. And so sometimes they'll have a job rec open where they're looking for 10, 15, 25 years of experience in XYZ. And actually, that's kind of a mirage. Like oftentimes when you push them on it, you realize that's not really what they need. They need somebody who's culture aligned or who has growth mindset or who's going to be able to come in and get close to the customer, create psychological safety, all of this type of good stuff. And so I think being able to sit at the table with credibility and with the tools of design and say, let's help you make the system better. That's a really, a really powerful thing.
1: Yeah, I think this is a really important step, right? Because we're talking about here is designing systems of work. And I think most people don't see it as a design problem. Still, right? They just see it as that's a process, and the way we hire people is the way we've always hired people. Actually, the only way to hire people is to write a job requirement, stick it up there. They must have this amount of college. They must have this amount of X, Y, twenty-five years experience in a new technology that just was released last week. <laughs> whatever, yeah. whatever it is. And I think it just is so important to really design around the customer in this instance who's are customers of your hiring process right like yeah do people want to do that do they have a great experience like one of the things we learned for sure when we were inside ThoughtWorks because that had like the classic idea it had like seven actual face-to-face interviews you had to do some sort of assessments it was a long a lot of steps that could be take some people years and some people just flew through the process but it was super variable right and nobody and we wondered like why and what we knew is that if we started the process with somebody and could close the process with them good or result bad what well, didn't really matter within 35 days they had a good experience even if yeah. they didn't get on the job they were thankful because it helped them move on yeah and when we started to really like look at these processes and design them intentionally we found that we got the type of outcomes we were aiming for in terms of looking for more diverse candidates, right? ThoughtWorks yeah. has like the highest percentage of female engineers in any company they publish. We published wow. all the data, right? It's so awesome. like 30% yeah. of female engineers in the company. We yeah. just made all the data available. And suddenly, guess what that does? Well, it makes more female engineers want to go work there because you're yeah. being transparent about it, right? And Absolutely, yeah. But again, it's counterintuitive for many places because they're afraid to say, well, maybe we've had adversity problem, So let's tell the world the reality and then let's start trying to take action to improve it. And But again, that's a counterintuitive for many companies. They're afraid, yeah. so they want to hide it, suppress it. And then yeah. the one type of person shows up that you're looking for and then there's 99% of people who are not like that and they feel even more alone. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a terrible experience. And I think, so the work you're doing here, I think is going to be profoundly important and differentiated for yeah, the future, well, right?
0: No, thank you. And We're definitely on a learning journey and we're throwing this in the mix with all the other kinds of ways that we do transformation work, but it's something that has come up often enough that we think there's a real need to help there. The other thing I would say is that there's a lot of legacy assumptions and legacy baggage that maybe companies have even forgotten like how to question what they're doing. And so the one that made me chuckle, made me sort of laugh at the beginning of the lockdown was Google and Facebook announcing that they were stopping all the performance reviews. They were just going to throw it all out the window, right? And all these engineers were delighted and happy and really relieved that they weren't getting their perf review. And I mean, that was totally the right thing to do in the moment. But that also means that's a big questioning moment. What do we need to unlearn about how we're trying to manage people's performance inside of companies? I see you're laughing away there. If people are interested in this topic, I think something that I'm reading at the moment, and it's really kind of blown my mind because it's like, how do I bring this into our work? And is it going to? blow everything up or can I bring in bits of it? So there's a great book that came out called Nine Lies About Work. It's a guy who's very high up at Cisco. He's kind of the SVP of performance at Cisco and also a guy who worked at Gallup for a long time, who's a really hardcore quant researcher. And so they spell out these nine lies and there's a lot of counterintuitive stuff in there where they have lots and lots and lots of data and they have big data and small data and they've got longitudinal studies and it's one of these kind of mind-blowing things that once you read it it makes total sense to you but there's some pretty profound truths in there that I think really put the finger on a lot of stuff that's going on inside a company so
1: what was your favorite one that stood out to you so far
0: well in the opening chapters, they talk a lot about people's attraction to a team versus a company versus a department. And so they talk a little bit about the impact that immediate collaborators and line managers have on an individual's, actually, frankly, on an individual's well-being and health. So Gallup came out with this data a couple of years ago, which I think is related to the research around... An individual's line manager actually is 50% more likely to have an impact on their health, physical, mental, any kind of well-being than, than even things like socioeconomic status and family status. So we think about just the amount of mental pressure and unhappiness that we're creating every day in every company all over the world by having misaligned objectives, misaligned values. This is So Jeffrey Pfeffer, who's a phenomenal researcher at Stanford, wrote a great book called Dying for a Paycheck, which is just like It's fantastic, but it's the most depressing thing ever to read because it's just 300 pages of stats about how work is killing people. And it's pretty serious in terms of these shadow costs that we don't think about by having people under too much pressure or having busy work inside of companies. It's a huge one. The other one that I love is that they have a phenomenal section on performance management where they talk about some of the really, really deep-seated problems with us thinking we can assess each other. It's a bit like the X-Files. People think the truth is out there and we just have to build some tool or capture some data to get it. But actually, it's an unbelievably subjective thing, right? Something going on in a conversation between Barry and Susan might be great for Barry or Susan or the company, but the very same interaction perceived by somebody else might be that helpful. And so they talk about problems with all of these systems that we're using inside of companies, trying to measure things in ways that they just shouldn't be measured.
1: Fascinating. I'm going to definitely pick up that book and have a read of it. So thank you for that. So I guess looking forward then, what are you most excited about in the future? What's the thing that's sort of lighting you up at the moment that you want to share?
0: Absolutely. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity in some of what we talked about earlier on the call around designing work and making work more meaningful. I think some of that is at the kind of fuzzy purpose and values level, but I also think a tremendous amount of it is in some of the practicalities that we are talking about in terms of remote work or, hybrid of remote and in-person work. So I'm really excited to follow that vector and see where it goes. I'm hopeful that we can keep up this spirit of innovation and exploring that maybe the COVID lockdown has kind of prompted across the world. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that I'm also really mindful of things like income inequality and some of the injustice that we're seeing in this moment and how the momentum and dialogue we have needs to be sustained. There's some pretty radical rethinks needed, I think, in terms of some of our economic systems, particularly here in the US and who they're leaving out and leaving behind. So personally, I'm feeling obviously very fortunate to be in the position I'm in, but also trying to direct my resources and my team's resources towards things that we think matter.
1: That's fantastic to hear, I keep saying to myself that COVID's not a disruption, it's an accelerant. And, mm-hmm. and as we're seeing, it's accelerating some people and some share prices to go to the moon and other people to be really laid bare here. And I think there's some real tough societal questions that we've really got to ask ourselves and say, what type of system and what type of society do we really want to build? Yeah. But I'm excited to see how you're going to contribute to that with your work. I think there's going to be some pretty more amazing things and hopefully we can have you back on the show in the future to share maybe some of the lessons you learn along the way again.
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Barry. This was a great, great pleasure. Nice.